So how's your endurance? Like, I've never really thought of myself as really someone who's got a lot of, like, endurance when I was in high school, and I was a big, I was a football guy. I was at a football school. Uh, I was joked back, back in Iowa, like, like, God was here, and football was here, and wrestling was here. Like, it was that kind of town, you know. And uh, although I suppose that's not really funny, but it was kind of, it, it is what it is. Um, and uh, our football coaches always said, you know, you, well, what we do in football is you go hard for about seven seconds. That's the length of your average play, and then you stop. And then seven seconds, and then you stop. And, uh, and so that's, that was our mindset, as opposed to those cross-country guys who would be running over there and just running and running. And, and as football guys, we would make fun of the cross-country guys because, you know, we were the tough football guys. Although I think in some ways, at least I, I'll, I'll make this confession, I was a little jealous of the cross-country guys for two reasons. One, they got to practice with the girls' cross-country team, and I was surrounded by sweaty guys. So that was one. But then, two, I was always like, man, how do they just keep going? Like, I just could never imagine, like, running that far. But then, I guess as I look back, I realized we did a lot of conditioning, too. Like, not all endurance is the same. Like, I had to keep doing those seven-second plays again and again and again and again and again throughout the game. So it's a different kind of endurance, but it's still endurance. Like, you still need to keep going. And as you go through life, realize that there is a wide variety of endurance that we need. Whether it's just dealing with the struggles of life or even just spiritually, we need endurance. We need to be able to persevere throughout whatever it is that comes at our faith, whatever it is that comes at our lives. We need endurance as Christians. And it's this whole concept of endurance that's going to get us started into this new church year and this new sermon series that we're in. We're in the new church year, so we're in the season of Advent, and Advent is the season where we are preparing, preparing for the coming of Christ, and in the coming of Christ in, in, in a variety of ways. We think, obviously, in this season, we're heading towards Christmas, so we think of the coming of Christ as that, that, that baby, that first Christmas, but also we can think of him coming to Jerusalem, to die on the cross for our sins. We prepare for that. We prepare for him each and every day to come into our hearts as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and strengthens us in our faith. And we prepare for him to come again someday to set all things right. And so as we're preparing for that, our theme is the end is near. The, the, the goal of our faith, Jesus coming again, it, it, it's near. How near? We don't, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's near. And so we want to prepare for that and be ready for that. And this lesson today especially, we want to be able to endure whatever comes our way so we can reach that goal, that end. Our lesson today is about how we, with whatever's coming against us and coming against our faith, can never lose heart. The lesson we have, it's Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 to 13. It says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, these verses, these words, they, they take place during Holy Week. So by this point, when we get to the, this point in the story of Jesus, Jesus has already rode into, Bethle or rode into Jerusalem on that donkey on Palm Sunday, and, and all these events are now in motion leading towards the cross. During that week, Jesus has been doing a great deal of teaching in Jerusalem in the temple. And also really preparing the people, warning them about some of the things that are going to be coming up. Not just his death, but also some of the difficult things that are going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. And if you look at some of the things that Jesus says, not just in teaching, but just personally, you can see that this is really weighing on his heart. 
So like in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is deeply saddened that he just, he wants to gather the people that live in Jerusalem. He wants to be their savior. He is their savior, but he, he wants them to know it. He wants them to receive it. He wants them to believe in it. And so his heart is broken by the fact that so many people are rejecting him, but then also because of something else that is about to come up. And in the verses that lead up to our sermon lesson, we get some insight to what it is. So in chapter 24, Jesus and his disciples were told that they were leaving the temple one day, and his disciples are like just apparently just amazed at the big stones of the temple. And so they come up and they're pointing it out to Jesus. And then Jesus says this really striking thing. He says, do you see all this? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be torn down. And what he's talking about is something that actually ends up happening um, about, about 80, 70 or so, is the Romans actually end up coming in and basically destroying the temple in Jerusalem. And it still sits in ruins today as a result. Jesus knew this was coming. He knew what was ahead. And so then in the verses that come right up to our sermon lesson, Jesus is really preparing them for all the stuff that's going to come up. For the people who are going to come in, to, to the Romans who are going to come in there, to Jerusalem. He's preparing them for all the challenges that are going to happen. He's preparing them not just for the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem, but also for the challenges that they're going to face in the early church going forward. And all the difficulties that Christians are going to face in the world and the, the scary things that are going to be happening in the world. He's preparing them for that, for what's going to happen in Rome, what's going to happen in the early church, but also some of the things that are going to happen even in our day today. There's this, this image that, uh, that is helpful when thinking about the way biblical prophecy works. Is that when you look at biblical prophecy, it's kind of like looking at a mountain range. Is when you're off in a distance, you see all these different peaks. And from a distance, you can't necessarily tell how close the different peaks are to each other. They kind of look like one blob, in a way. One range. The closer you get, there's actually some distance. They're connected, but there's some distance between them. And many biblical prophecies, they work the same sort of way. There's some things that are kind of lumped together in some ways. In this section of Matthew, much of this is really directed at what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So much of this is really directed at things that, that, we've already, that have already happened in history. And at the same time, it also gives us some insight to what we're experiencing today and going to experience when Jesus returns they're, they're kind of lumped together in these prophecies, but they're actually really sometimes a lot of time in between. They're connected, they're related, but there's some differences here. One of the things we want to be careful today, sometimes when people get really like hardcore into trying to predict like, oh, this, this event means this, and this event in history means this, is sometimes they try to overapply the parts that have already happened to our world today. And what we want to be careful is to not try to put words in God's mouth. What we want to get is the, what is the general, what is, what is Jesus really preparing us for? Recognizing some of this has happened, some of this is what we're still dealing with, and some of it is, is yet to come. And so we're in this section where Jesus is really preparing the disciples, preparing Christians, and preparing us for the challenges we face. And he says, he says to us some words that are encouraging us to never lose heart. In our lesson, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, 
the love of most will grow cold. So th- that word wickedness, by the way, it, what, what, it, what it literally means in original language, it literally is the word it means anti-law. So because of the growth of anti-law, or some translations will say lawlessness, the love of most or the love of many will grow cold. Then the word grow cold, there's kind of a, a cool word picture here. It, it literally, it's the idea of a soft blowing on something to cool it down. So maybe you think of like when you want to blow your birthday candles out on a cake, but maybe, maybe even a better picture, and I just, this is rather the best one I could find, but if I, well really it would be ideal to find a picture of someone just like, you know, something comes out of, uh, you know, the oven or whatever, and it's too hot, right? And you don't just blow it really hard, right? You just kind of blow on it to try to cool it down, right? So the idea is that this increase of anti-law anti-law or or lawlessness will actually slowly and steadily blow out the love of many people. Kind of cool it down and blow out that love. Anti-law or lawlessness and love are paired here in this verse because love and God's law go directly together. Sometimes when you think about law, we think primarily of rules and this and that and whatnot, but God's law is really at its core about love. And you can see that actually by just going a couple chapters ahead or previous to our our sermon lesson where Jesus is asked, someone says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God's law at its core is about love. Loving God, loving others. So anti-law is anti-love. And so the increase of anti-law means the blowing out of love. Now, is, if love is, is, is the center of God's law, and if love is what Jesus is concerned about here, we should take a moment and review, even though we've used this video somewhat recently, review for us and really take the heart to us what love is really all about. So, If you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day, it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. 
But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. That's a pretty big statement that the meaning of human existence is basically to receive the love of God so that then you can overflow and love other people. But I mean, that's how Jesus lays it out, right? What is, what is, what is the law about God? What was the law all about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and what is love? It's this others-focused 
way of being where you put others first and you serve other people and you make a choice to, to love them. Even if they are challenging and, and difficult to love, you go right in and, and you do it. And if that's what the law is about, then anti-law or lawlessness is anti-love. And if love is about putting other people first, what would anti-law be? What would lawlessness be? If love is about putting other people first and the law is about love, what would anti-law be? Putting yourself first, right? Selfishness. When we're talking about anti-law or lawlessness, it's really essentially caring for self over others. And it would be good for us to think about how this, how this plays out in our world. Where do we see selfishness? instead of putting other people first. As I was pondering what examples to share here this morning, I had a really hard time coming up with them. And you want to know why? There were too many to choose from. A lot of times when you think of examples, it's hard to like, oh, I've got to try to come up with an example. Like, there are so many examples of how we are selfish. And we put ourselves first over other people. Just... Here's one that's probably an easy one to point out that is very common in our world, growing in our world, that is to help us understand how this works some, is right now in our world, the adult film industry is huge and growing. Partly because you don't have to have, you know, whatever channel to get it. All you need is this thing. And you can just look at it. Men, women, doesn't matter. It is like, it's just, it's so easy. And, but think about that industry. One, besides the fact that it totally pollutes like God's, you know, sixth commandment, it is taking advantage of the people in those videos for selfish gain. Whether it's the people who are taking the videos and making the money or the other people consuming them. It's taking advantage of others for selfish gain. That's an easy one to point out, right? But think about throughout the day, who do we first think about in the morning? Often it's ourselves, right? What do I want to do today? What is going to help me feel better today? How do I think this should go today? Our focus is on us, on me. You know, or like you get home from work. Like, is, is your focus immediately, how can I serve my family and love my family? Or is it, how can I make a beeline to my most comfortable chair with my favorite drink and my favorite TV show that I can binge on Netflix? Like, how do we, where, do, where are we, we, we centered during the day? And don't get me wrong, we want to take care of ourselves. Please do. We need self-care. But remember, the whole image here is of a slow blow that can cool down love. Do, you, do we start sometimes to just lean a little bit away from just taking care of ourselves to being focused on ourselves so that this other-centered existence kind of cools down and we become self-focused? Our world today is all about what we want, right? You can get your profile, you know, online to personal, you know, it fits you, your taste, your interests, what you want. It's so much about just, just me and what do I want for the world? How do I want things to be? What am I comfortable with? All throughout our, our day, it's very, it can be very me-focused. And the more people are me-focused, the more it makes people me-focused. I mean, just think about how this plays out in a, 
and a family. If you have, let's say you have a father who, you know, should be pouring love into his kids, right? But then he works all day, gets home, the kids want daddy's attention, and all daddy does is turn on the football game and never pay attention to them. It's really hard for that kid then to love that dad back. So the lack of love from the dad results in a lack of love for the child. But then when that child grows up, how able are they to love other people too? It's hard to give what you never received. A lack of love tends to spur a lack of love. And this happens in so many various ways, but there's also even something in the chapter that comes before our sermon lesson that shows even more how just, how prevalent this can be and how much we need to be aware of this. Jesus, when he's speaking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are the people who look like they're following God's law, right? He says, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The word wickedness there is the same one as our sermon lesson, which is actually the word lawlessness or anti-law. So what are they full of? Anti-love. They are following the rules of the faith, but not embodying what the law is all about, which is love. It's important for us, it's just real, as Christians, and I don't, many of you here have been part of the church for a long time, is it, we can go through the motions of faith and miss what faith is all about. You know, we can, we can go to church, you can give money, you can do all those things, but we can be empty of love on the inside. And I've been concerned for quite a while that this is something that as Lutherans can especially come up and then explain why. Because in the Lutheran church, we're really, really good at what we call catechesis, teaching doctrines. And it's awesome. We're, we're really good at it. But can sometimes our sinful self blow just enough to where we can know the answers and feel like I've got all the answers, I can check all the boxes, where we can have all the right answers to faith and sometimes overlook that what God wants to do is more than just give us the right answers. He wants us to know the answer personally in our hearts. He wants it not to just be in our heads. He doesn't want you to just be able to stand in front of church and, and recite, you know, certain things. He wants to give, he wants you to receive his love personally in our hearts and overflow and be transformed by it. It can so easily happen where the love can just be blown cold. Which is why we need to really listen to Jesus' comments here and really take to heart that God wants us to not lose heart. What he really wants for us is not to just, just go through the motions, not to just have the right answers, but he wants us to really have hearts of love and to never lose heart. He says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the word stand firm, by the way, literally means to, to remain under. So it's the idea that there's all this going on, there's this weight. It's hard to live in a world where there's not a lot of love. But you can remain under it. You can, you can endure it to the end. And, and the word end in, in, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when you see it, it it's, that, it's really it's like the end goal, what you're trying to complete. And, and you, it's like the finish line. 
And there is a goal. God is doing something. The world doesn't just exist today for no reason. In, in the verse that comes right after our sermon lesson, Jesus goes on to say, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God's word is, God is carrying out a plan to bring his word to the whole world. There is a goal that God is fulfilling. There is a go- there's a reason why you are here. If God wanted you to be in heaven right now at this moment, you would already be there. You are here because he has a purpose for you to be here. And he is doing something through you. He is spreading his gospel in the world until the point that it has reached the whole world. And that day Jesus will return and then you will be with him in the resurrection. You will be with him for eternity. Jesus says, he who endures, who remains under until you reach the goal will be saved. He says, never lose heart. But man, that's hard. How do you not lose heart? Like how in a world where there's so much anti-love, how do we not lose heart? I'm going to share with you, it's been a prayer of mine quite a bit the last year that, that sometimes I'll be like, I recognize, man, I'm doing, going through the, the, doing this thing and this thing and this thing. But you know what? Sometimes I'm not all that loving. And it's been a regular prayer of mine. God, give me a loving heart, a truly loving heart. How, where, where, do, where do we go? Where do we find where do we do that? Because you can't just muster up love. This is why we read the background lesson from 1 John. 1 John is full of the answer to this challenge. 1 John talks a lot about the wickedness, the anti-lawness in the world. And then he, actually, then he, he connects it with antichrist. That's an interesting connection. That's a whole other can of worms we're not going to get into. But just if you want to do some study, it's interesting to consider anti-law Anti-love and anti-law go together, and then that also goes together with antichrist. It's an interesting connection. Again, we're not going to go too much into it right now. But John makes it clear. How do we know what love is? In a world where there's so much anti-law, anti-love, this is how. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In a world where there's not a lot of love, where do you go? You go back and you look at the life of Christ. And when it says that it laid down his life, ultimately, obviously, we think of him laying it down at the cross. But his whole life is really laid down in, in, in love for his father and love for us. So this morning, let's, let's do this a bit. Let's just think about the life of Christ and the way we see God's love on display for us. This season, we're preparing for Christmas, right? Just the fact that Jesus was born is an incredible amount of love. To think that God the Son became a person to live in this broken world is astounding. Like, now that it's cold outside, do you ever wake up in the morning and just go, oh, I can't wait to go outside into the cold? Right? Like what, what happens when you wake up in the morning in your warm bed? You just want to, like, I was hunting some of this last week, and, like, you wake up in the morning, you're, like, warm and cozy, and, like, the last thing I want to do is step out into the cold. I know it's going to be. And it's just cold, let alone being the Son of God, becoming a human, being conceived inside of a woman, being born, and then, like, growing up and having to have diapers change and then go through puberty and do all these things. Like, but God the Son, out of love for his Father and love for us, I'm going to become human. I'm going to do a whole lot more than get out of a warm bed and step out on a cold day. I'm going to take on human flesh. Just the fact that he even is human is an amazing announcement of love. And then he went and he, he, he perfectly 
loved people throughout his life, submitted to his parents. You ever been in a situation where you were underneath maybe a boss or someone was working, we were working with, and they had authority over you, but clearly you actually knew how to do the job better than they did? Come on, let's be honest. You guys have been there. You've had that where you've been like, I, I, I need to listen because I'm supposed to, but really, can you imagine being Jesus and having the wisdom of God and listening to human parents? But he did, every step. Listening to his human parents perfectly. And then you think about his ministry and the way that he, he went and he spent time with these, these disciples who, when you read through the gospel accounts, are just full of themselves and boneheaded so much of the time, right? Like, who's going to be first in the kingdom of God? And can, can I have a spot on your right and to your left? And Jesus just, he doesn't just put up with them, but he patiently speaks to them and teaches us. Sometimes he calls them out. One of my favorite sections of scripture is when he says to his disciples, how long will I put up with you? It's kind of comical when you think about it. You can just see Jesus being like, come on, guys. But he keeps ministering to them, and he, and he didn't stop choosing them to be his disciples. Then how he had time for people. You know, the woman who had the, 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 the bleeding for 12 years, he stops and heals her. When he was en route to somewhere, he wasn't too busy for her. Or think about how Jesus, this is one of those things that maybe doesn't seem loving at first. It's kind of hard, but it really is loving. Like when Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick, instead of coming and healing him right away, Jesus waited and allowed his friend to die so that he could come and then raise him back to life and display his glory. He knew that the better thing for his friends was for him actually to wait and not to remove the pain right away but to heal him later, or to bring him back to life, really. He, he did the hard thing for his friends to get, do the greater thing. And then, of course, we think about him going to the cross and, and, and him, his willingness to do what his father called him to do, his willingness to, to, to go and to, to experience that pain on the cross. And that while he was on the cross, he did things like say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looked at his mom and, 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 and John, and he said, said, you know, woman, here's your son, and, so, and here's your, your, your mother. He provided for her, like, all the way across. And when he rose again, he came back and he had patience with his disciple Thomas who was doubting and, and, and he, he had patience for him and he went and, and, and sat with his disciples. He reinstated Peter after Peter had disowned him and he made a promise that he would be with his disciples always. And if he would be with his disciples always, He's made a promise now that he's also with us. So all of those ways that he showed love to his disciples, he continues to show to us. He continues to choose you as his. He continues to be patient with you, just like he was patient with his disciples. He continues to, to have time for you, whatever you need it. He continues to reassure you that his Words to the Father on your behalf are, Father, forgive them, because I have died for them. He, just like he provided a mother and a son together with his mom and, and, and John, he looks and he, he promised in Scripture that he would send the Spirit to work in us. He provides a comforter for us every step. He continues to be involved in every detail of our lives, guiding everything according to his will and his plan, until that day that we are with him, he returns, sets all things right, and there's the resurrection. He continues to love us. And so how do we endure in a world where there's such a lack of love? 
we again and again go back to the source of love. Go back to his word. Go back to the fact that you are baptized in the Christ, which means you are connected to him. You are a child of God, washed clean. Take his supper, which is his real body and his real blood, where you are receiving the forgiveness. You are united with him and united with others. Go back to the source of love. Because through those things, the Spirit works to strengthen our faith, to fill us with love, to transform our hearts, that we might love others, knowing that we are first and fully loved by God. Going back to the source of love, Jesus, the work of the Spirit, that's how we never lose heart.